happy Monday to all of you out there. Today is May the 24th, 2021, and this is the Friendship News Hour presented to you by Bummer Dude Media. My name is Frank Huerta, and this is Alex Kenzie. It is a Monday. Padres have the best record in the major leagues. Phil Mickelson is a PGA champion. It is 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, and it's 78 degrees outside. Uh, I could die. A happy man. Well, life doesn't get much better than that, man. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'd say not. I'd say not. Congrats to Phil. That was a, a hell of an achievement, man, at 50 years old. Damn near 51. He's like 50 in 11 months. Uh, had it won since 2019 at Pebble Beach. Hadn't lifted a major championship since 2013 at Mir- Muirfield. Um, and since just this year, since September, he missed six cuts. So I, he wasn't exactly yeah. having a knockout year. He hadn't won a tournament between the years of 2013 and 2018. Wow. He was winless. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. And no, I think he was outside wild, of the 100, top 100 golfers, too. This, like He officially fell out like the last couple months. And it's not that he's not a good golfer anymore. It's playing a, he's playing a, a, a young man's game, and everyone's getting longer. I mean, you even had Rory McIlroy, who's the, the, one of the longest players on tour, saying that he was a little bit perturbed about the likes of a Bryson DeChambeau and how far that ball was going off the tee. And then you got Crafty Lefty who comes yeah. out there at 50 years old with weathered, leathery skin. <laughs> and I'm just driving the point home that the dude is not young and yeah. well past his golfing prime. And he goes out on the hardest course. That's not a, that's not a subjective statement. Everybody who you asked this week says, this is the hardest course that we play on tour because there's so much sand and there's so much wind and you never know where it's going or what it's doing. It changes in an instant. And it tears you to shreds. And Phil put on a masterclass. Just just dominated all week. And it was so fun to watch. Yeah. It's funny, too, because I feel like in the last, like, five years, maybe, yeah, about, like, the last five years, he's been, like, more of, like, a personality than, like, a golf pro to me. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's the man. He always hits mm-hmm. his sick-ass flop shots and all the crazy shit he can do. But, like, I, all I feel like I, like, when I think of Phil Mickelson, I think of, like, his calves. I think of, like, him talking about hitting bombs, like, his diets that he does, like, the coffee he tries. Like, I don't think about him winning. You know what I mean? Like, it's weird because he was such a dominant golfer for so long so yeah good for him man uh win win number 45 and major championships number six for him so that's fantastic quick uh personal story about phil mickelson uh recently i hit into phil mickelson a couple weeks ago while he was filming a commercial at at madera's country club here in in san diego and they gave us the option to get a beer after (laughs) the round or or to play the show he was filming on a par three but he wasn't on the green he was behind the green on a hill and he couldn't have been like 20, 30 yards from the, from the green. I don't know why he was so far back and why he was filming in like the trees. But anyway, um, they gave us the option to, sh- to hit. And the first two players in my group went and hit and got on the green. And I hit a beautiful seven iron that went uh, way further left than it should have. And I, and I hit the production crew of Phil Mickelson filming a TV commercial. Did you go play the ball or what? You just oh no away? oh no 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 and and th- there was another person who didn't even play the hole because they they wanted to avoid the mistake that I made so I just stood right next to them and had plausible deniability they had no idea who hit it so I 
I, I would have walked over there. Phil, you want to show me how to recover from this one, bud? <laughs> I'm going to need some Dude, help. Seriously. <laughs> oh, wow. nah, good for Phil. Good yeah. for Phil. San Diego native out of Rancho Santa Fe. Did not know that. Isn't Xander also? Correct. Yeah. Both, both San Diego golfers, uh, Xander didn't even make the cut. Mm. Um, his day uh, will come uh, t- uh, today, uh, well, tomorrow, but, but today is the day uh, that we talk about the Wuhan lab theory. Uh, <laughs> I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time, um, but as, as the case goes, concrete evidence hasn't really been uh, available. And the evidence that we do have uh, has been more or less mirrored by the uh, uh, Communist Party in China. And so um, all we're getting is kind of tidbits here and there about this this uh, Wuhan lab theory. The, the theory uh, that we're talking about is that the coronavirus came from a uh, the Wuhan uh, Virology uh, Institute. Um, which is a lab that researches, among other things, corona bat viruses in an attempt to make them as strong as possible so that they can find cures and vaccines so that when we come into a pandemic like we have now, we're not, um, we're not totally helpless, right? So the theory is that the, the coronavirus that has plagued the planet over the past year and, and some months has came from a lab in, in, in Wuhan. This has been a circulating theory for almost a year, at least, at least 11 months. I first heard of it from a former, uh, a former U.S. government official, somebody who worked in the State Department, um, whose, whose name is not uh, is escaping me right now, but he was on he was in, in, being interviewed um, on a radio show, and he said, you know, I don't speak for the United States, but if you want my opinion, this thing came out of this lab. You have a lab where we know this virus originated from, researching the only thing that is plaguing. This, the, the globe right now in this coronavirus. They're researching the very thing that, that we're trying to fight. Um, and his words were basically, you know, the question isn't whether it came from the lab or not, but whether it was malicious or an accident. Um, so why this is getting some new traction today is because there was some intelligence that was brought to light uh, about three researchers from this Institute of Virology in Wuhan that became sick enough in November of 2019 that they sought hospital care. Um, And they had symptoms that were consistent with both COVID-19 and common seasonal illness. They can't say they had COVID-19 because they didn't test for it because they didn't know really what it was at the time. So this information comes out on the eve of the WHO, the World Health Organization's decision-making uh, body. Um, but they're, they're going to have a meeting tomorrow, and they're expected to discuss the next phase of this investigation into the COVID-19 origins. Now, this body, this WHO body, has come out and said pretty definitively that the idea of the virus escaping the Wuhan lab 
is almost impossible. Hmm. And it's in, in direct conflict with what the information that we're, that we're receiving currently. They believe that the virus probably jumped from humans to humans, excuse me, jumped to humans from an animal. And the problem with this and this particular group is that when the Wall Street Journal did an investigation about this group, not their discoveries, but the group itself, uh, they uncovered details about the team's formation and constraints that reveal how little power it had to conduct a thorough, impartial examination and call into question the clarity of its findings appeared to provide. So what this is all really saying is that China has made it extraordinarily difficult for a third-party group like this one from the World Health Organization to conduct a thorough investigation in China, particularly with this, this virology lab. And unfortunately, last year, when we were under the Trump administration, Trump had more or less withdrew us from the WHO because the WHO was spouting these theories from China that Americans came in in a covert operation and planted this virus in China. That was one of the official theories coming from China last year when talking about the origins of this virus. And it was something that the World Health Organization ran with. They took that information and they said, this is as plausible as any theory out there. (laughs) So Trump said, you guys can go fuck yourselves. And he pulled out of, of the World Health Organization and took funding away. And that was, you know, that was his response. Unfortunately, that response made it very difficult for the United States to rally allies to conduct this investigation. So what we have now is the World Health Organization are going to come out tomorrow with next steps on how to find the origins of the coronavirus. They believe that they're not going to find anything concrete for, in their words, a couple of years. And we have all this information that gives credibility to the theory that this came out of a lab, most likely accidentally. And obviously China is trying to not allow that information to come out because then that puts all the blame on them and they can't have that. So um, very interesting. Uh, Important to point out though that this is still a theory and that there isn't anything that points concretely to the fact that this virus came out of a lab in Wuhan. Um, but the way in which the investigation has been conducted, it casts a bunch of shadows over whether or not the findings of this report are going to come out and be as credible as we hope they would. Sure. Yeah. And reading through like this Wall Street Journal article that they released, they said that the Wuhan Institute hasn't shared any raw data, safety logs or lab records on like any of this work that they've done with coronavirus no. and bats. So it's like, it, what? what? Yeah. If you've got nothing to hide, that's the first thing you'd want to show to show that you're good. If you wanted <laughs> you know, to prove that Americans came in and planted this virus, wouldn't you want to open up all of your doors so that the truth could come to light? And moreover, 
the Chinese Communist yeah. Party has has um, not been cooperative with releasing information and data on the the most the the earliest cases of coronavirus in China. So the people that were hospitalized, the people that were talking about it, the people, you know, they have kept all of that under wraps. And so, um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, with the shady behavior, how, how do you even, how do you even look at it objectively? How can he even say, and, and I don't even, like, I don't care to blame China. If the behavior is obviously to cover something up, you got to ask, what are they covering up? Now, do you think it's like a pride thing that they don't want to be linked to the origin of this thing? Or it's like there will be then be fiscal responsibility to, I don't want to say like reparations for the world, but like, would there be like fiscal responsibility tied to starting an outbreak of like a global pandemic? There's a couple of things that are going on there. One, one thing's very important to remember about China. They play a very long game. Okay. Mm-hmm. Americans, we do not play the same game as China. We are very short-term players. Our mindset is is very much in the here and now. Their mindset is in the next 100, 200 years, and their goal is domination. If they are mm-hmm. blamed for a worldwide pandemic in which 2.6 million people have died already from, then that is just fuel to the fodder of people who are against China and they can't have that. That's one. Number two, when you're in a communist country like China, it's all hierarchical. It's all bureaucratic, right? So this official reports, this official reports, this official reports, this official. This official can't report bad news to this official. Okay. That news needs to be good because he has to report to this official and that news needs to be good because he has to report to that official and that news needs to be good. So the corruption happens at the source. And so whenever anything like this happens, it's almost like an unwritten rule that you are going to protect what needs to be protected. The truth is what you say it is. And that happens at the beginning. And so I don't know that we'll ever really know the answer. Yeah, it's starting to look like it's going to be ambiguous almost forever. But the behavior of the country of origin of this virus seems to be that they are not uh, happy with um, an open investigation and they're not willing to allow themselves to be investigated the way that you would hope that somebody would, you know, Gosh, could you imagine that happening here and just the the outcry of of the American citizens if we were doing this stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we would, you know, that's the kind of stuff of revolution in this country. I mean, to keep something like that under wraps when all the evidence is pointing to your to your screw up. But we don't control the information like China does, though. I don't think like I, China like limits what websites certain people can go to. Like, I don't think you can go to Facebook in China. They control everything. They control mm. everything, particularly information, yeah, particularly the internet. I mean, there was a big giant, it was a big deal when Google came to, to China because Google's, Google's mantra, their mission statement was to do no evil. And in order to 
be in China, Google would have to bend the knee to their will and how they operate their internet, which is in no way free and in, in many ways repressive. And so when Google went over there and they, they, and they were allowed in China and they, they made a deal to be in China, it was a big deal for people here because you saw number one, that, that value of do no evil had a cost. And number two, it was always a cost that you had to pay to do business with China, but it was a cost that was as important to, to them, the, the, the biggest internet company ever to do business in this country. Mm-hmm. And I think you saw from there on, it was a very gradual um, move into China. But from there, like the, the, the table was set, you knew what you had to do to get in there. Um, so yeah, man, it, it's, it's all, it's all kind of screwy in, in, um, it's just frustrating because it, it's caused so much damage here and abroad and, and everywhere. And, um, it's likely, it's likely to be covered up. Now we should, we should note, we should mention again that, you know, this is all, these are just reports. This isn't factual quite yet. Uh, it looks pretty damning though, but while we're in this, in this fun world of speculation, Ha, ha, I thought I read or heard somewhere that that Fossey was like connected to this virology lab uh, in, in one way or the other. Sure. And, and, not, and not in in any insidious way, but he was the 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 director of the National Institute of Health in America, which gave this lab in Wuhan directly gave them funds for the sole purpose of researching researching viruses mm-hmm. that it's called uh oh god it's the, it's it's been it's been in the news it's something gain and gain something it, it, it's 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 just a, a gain of function it, it's a term to describe what you do when you want to develop something that is potentially hazardous or lethal for the purpose of developing a defense for it so if it is true that this virus came out of this lab, then it is also true that in no certain terms, the United States could be implicated in that release because sure. they okay. helped fund it. So it wasn't mm. like Fauci was giving money for the purpose of plaguing the earth with coronavirus. No. But... It is true that funds were sent directly to them from the National Institute of Health and had the sign off of Anthony Fauci to do so. And uh, then that guy became the face of coronavirus in America, which is kind of weird. A little bit. It's a little Could just weird. Be coincidental, I guess, but that is well, a little sure. weird. That is a little weird. I've never liked yeah. the guy. I've never, <laughs> I've, you know what? I hate more than a politician, an unelected politician. And that's who Anthony Fauci is. He's yeah. an unelected politician. He's the highest paid government official in the United States. And he's, he's been a flip-flopper this entire time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I hate, when, I hate when people like him use manipulation for the greater, as a justification for the greater good. The means justifying the ends. I'm talking about when, he, when they first said not to use masks. 
not because mm. they weren't helpful, but because they didn't, there was a shortage on them. And just all yeah. that ticky tacky rules and, and, and the things, cause he, you know, he knows who he is. He knows who he's talking to and how much weight people put into his, you know, he's a friggin', he's become a rock star because of this. Oh yeah. Just going on, on the news all the time and spouting off on the mouth about this, that, and the other, and be scared of this and be scared of that. And then in just one foul swoop, we can take off our masks and everything is okay. Just irks me to the nth right. degree. Well, while we're in China, uh, a story came out over the weekend that was, was pretty interesting. Um, kind of wild, actually. Um, 21 ultra marathon runners have died after extreme weather conditions hit a 100 kilometer, which is like about 62 mile uh, mountain race in northwest China. Uh, that distance is about twice the distance of a standard marathon. Uh, ultra marathons are quite common all over the world for crazy people that like to run that long. I don't know how the hell they do that. Um, but, uh, the, it happened in the high altitude and I'm going to butcher the shit out of this, but Huangzi Xin mountain, uh, it, that, that marathon began on Saturday morning and it was sunny conditions, all good. But by 1 PM local time, the weather conditions had turned very drastically with freezing rain, hailstones and gale winds, uh, lashing the runners, uh, in Gansu County. And, uh, as the temperatures dropped, in uh, which is in the forest that they are kind of running through the Yellow River Stone Forest, uh, runners reported suffering from hypothermia, while others just went missing. You know, if they walked off the trail just to take a break or whatever. Um, most they said that most of the competitors were wearing just thin shorts and t-shirts. Uh, the marathon organizers organizers running a marathon called off the race. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Um, the but the organizers they just call off the race so like, this is ridiculous we cannot do this um and they launched a search party of 1200 people to scour this terrain which is like a forest on like the side or part of like a mountain so you know it's visibility is quite low i'm sure um and they continued to search th after dark they kept looking um, they said by Sunday morning, 151 of the 172 race participants had been confirmed safe uh, with eight in the hospital, but 21 were found dead. So um, are we in an age right now where we can't predict this type of weather in that short of a, of a time? Right. That's what I was saying, too. And, and it said From morning to afternoon. Yeah. And it said that officials were alongside the race, like saying, get off, like, stop, stop running. Like, this is not good. They had shacks every couple miles, just like from like within the, the park, within the preserve. And they said that a lot of them they had like about 50 people in some of these shacks that were, you know, no bigger than like 10 by 10, just all cramming in there to get heat and, and to warm up and to try to get like some feeling back in their limbs. And they said some of these people are just like, fuck you. I'm gonna keep running this thing. Like, I'm whatever. I'm not worried about it and uh yeah they uh, 21 of them did not make it so very very interesting oh yeah dude you could absolutely you could absolutely see a, a few ultra marathoners i mean the biggest swinging dicks there are and they're like what is this a little <laughs> hail i run ultra marathons you know what I mean? Like, yeah, of course, their their pride and their strengths are going to get right in the way, and yep. they're going to say, "Yeah, I'm finishing this thing." And uh, damn, that sucks, man. That's 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 so sad. I just I can't believe you can't you can't predict that kind of weather in such a short amount. Of, I, mean, I mean, we live in so I live in San Diego. In San Diego, we have microclimates. In in thirty a thirty drive east of me could be completely different weather than where I'm at now, but. 
I mean, I don't know. I don't. I, I can't see weather changing that drastically. Yeah, the only thing I could think is like in the mountains. Maybe it can turn quickly up in the mountains with with wind and and how weather moves. I, I don't know anything about weather to, to really make that claim. But yeah, I, I don't see how that's possible. But I mean, yeah. human uh, ignorance also played into this because it sounds like they were trying to shut the shit down and people were not having it. So uh, rest in peace. It's a sad story. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, live here in San Diego. We don't have that weather. It's not something that we have to worry about. But um, one of the things that we have to worry about, one of the biggest things that we have to worry about, uh, particularly um, families and families who are behind and can't get ahead. Um, and that we, we have to worry about uh, affording housing. It is um, always been expensive to live out West. Uh, but nowadays it is almost impossible to purchase a home out here. Um, there's been article after article after article written about uh the housing market on the whole, and we'll get into that in a second, but um, an article came out this weekend um, by, by NBC7 here in San Diego, and basically saying why it's impossible to buy a home in, in, in town here. Their tagline is, if you make $139,000 a year and save for a down payment for 20 years, you can afford to buy a medium home priced, a medium priced home in San Diego. So, so that's what that's what it is. That's what it takes to buy a home here. A median home price in San Diego is eight hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. Median, median home price. Wow. And we're talking about three bedroom, two bath, thirteen hundred square feet. That's what you're buying. Um, and it's incredibly frustrating because if you're in a low-income area, you're not going to be able to make that gap up. There's just no way. There's just no way you can do that. You, you would, and you would, you're either renting for your entire life or you're moving out of San Diego to go make this happen. It just doesn't, it just doesn't exist. But what's crazy about that is that a year ago, while this is still incredibly high, just a year ago, median home price in San Diego was $671,000. Okay. So that's an increase of almost $200,000, $155,000 difference. Mm-hmm. And a year before that, July of 2019, the median home price in San Diego was $563,000. So it has increased over $300,000 in two years. Yeah. And that is a trend that is existing in almost every housing market in America. What I never get with San Diego in particular and like Southern Cal and, and like certain places with like the amazing weather and climate, yada, yada, that you guys have. How do you have areas of like low income housing when like they're so expensive? Like how have those people over time not been outpriced? Like obviously section eight exists for like low income housing and things like that. But like how, how are there 
pockets like that that exist where they haven't just been outpriced and rich people move in, buy in, renovate, do whatever they do, gentrify. Like how how is that a thing? I could see in, in like cities like Detroit and other cities where like it's much easier because you can buy property cheaper and then you could just have huge communities of low income housing. But how does it exist out there? Um, you know, you you have like the city center, right? Where I live in in North Park, it's it's as central to San Diego as you can get, and you could find a home out here in the center of San Diego for as much as you could find it in an area that is considered low income, but you're getting like, I could buy right now a house for Mm $450,000 and it would be a one bedroom, one bath, 550 square feet. Okay. That same price could get me maybe like a three bedroom, one bath in a low income area. And it's just not an attractive place to live. So it's the, the real estate is okay, but it's not, you're, you're fighting traffic 45 minutes each way, going home and and going to work. The area is not great. There's a lot of crime. Um, and it's just not, it's not an attractive place to live where I live now in North park. It used to be crime ridden. It used to be kind of run down. It used to be a little bit shady and a little bit seedy, but it's worth investing in because of the location. But if you're 30 minutes outside the city center in La Mesa or Lemon Grove or Spring Valley, and if you're from San Diego, you know what these communities are. There's no incentive to move there because there's nothing really going on. And so that's that's where the real estate is a little bit cheaper. And that is where folks flock to who can't afford to buy in these other areas. But I think what's really concerning about this is that the gap is rising considerably. And the only, so like the reason that this happens is, is twofold. You have, you have interest rates being at a ridiculous low. Okay. means it's cheaper for you to borrow money. And so during the pandemic, when we've already kind of covered this, but people had more savings than ever, people have less debt now than, than they've ever had before. So the people who were in position to purchase a home decided to take advantage of these low rates and it created a run on the supply of homes. Well, a place like San Diego, there aren't enough homes for the people who live here. Right. Right. So if we're not building enough homes, then the supply that we have is just is going to be stagnant, meaning the price is just going to jump up super high. So the value of the home right now in San Diego and across the country is determined by the supply of homes. Once that changes, one has to think that that price goes down considerably because like nothing's really happened to, to make your property evaluate that much. It's almost artificially evaluated because of the constraints on the supply and how low interest rates are. So once interest rates start going up a little bit, then the, the people, the potential buyers in the market are going to go, are going to go down because they're not going to be able to afford to buy a home. And 
I, you just got to imagine that, you know, anytime there's a bubble, I mean, we just saw it with crypto and we don't know when or how it comes, but anytime there's a bubble, it has to pop. And, um, so we'll see. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it just continues to skyrocket and go way forward. But um, the value of a home has never been higher, and it's never been harder to buy a home. That's yeah. true in San Diego, and it's true everywhere. Yeah, I was going to say, it's it's across the country. I've, I've been kind of looking into this a lot. And I, and my, I myself, me and my wife, uh, took advantage of this last year uh, during the pandemic. Um, basically, like once our wedding, we were supposed to get married last May, and that, that obviously got canceled. And we got most of those most of that money back, most of those deposits back. And we said, well, let, we looked at the market rates were pretty low, not as quite as low as they are now, but, um, you know, we have this, this sum, like we, we should use this, we should do something with this. And we, we did, we, we moved out to the burbs, got a, a, a nice house for the, for the money at the time. And, uh, it's, it's awesome. I, I'm glad we did it then. Cause I think if, if we were trying to look now where we would find the problem that so many people all across the world are finding. Um, and, and like you said, it's because of these super like low mortgage rates. There are a ton of people that are trying to take advantage of that, but a limited amount of homes. So what you're seeing is in a lot of these places, there's bidding wars that are starting. Um, and they're ridiculous compared to like what any, like anything that a lot of real estate agents have ever seen. Uh, it, it said that buyers are increasingly offering additional enticements, including waiving home inspections, for hidden structural problems, which is ridiculous to buy a house without looking into these things. Um, they're also providing free leasebacks to sellers, uh, which offers like the sellers to remain in the home between one to six months after the close so that they can then go find a house. But the caveat there is a lot of people are doing that free of rental charges. So the new mm -hmm. buyers would be taking over, you know, starting their mortgage and letting the people live there for one to six months and paying for them to live there in order for them to have this house secured in whatever time yeah, they you, go to move in. You'd almost have to be a fool to not take that offer. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, the article I was reading said about one in five first-time home buyers had to go above their budgets to buy a home. More than one in 10 waived the contingencies, like these home inspections. Uh, another one in five spent more than a year on their real estate hunt, which I'm telling you, I did this for like, we looked for three months and I was defeated after three months. It is grueling going to look at like seven to 10 houses on a Saturday. And then they just like blend together and you don't know what you want. And you just get frustrated and you're bickering about dumb shit that, you know, nitpicking between the houses. It, it sucks. So I, I cannot imagine what it's like doing that for a year. Um, but what's wild is, is how the banks are handling this because like you said, it's a bubble. Uh, definitely it's a bubble that that's identified, but after the crash, uh, you know, back in 06, 07, the banks are more set up for this. So, you know, in, instead of how loose it used to be to secure a mortgage, now there's, you know, you got to provide tax data, paychecks, uh, a bunch of information that like shows that you can afford the mortgage. So like that is all in place, which should, you know, hopefully prevent a recession from happening again. But what's wild with this and could cripple people in a different way this time is that th the way it works is that a seller can list their house at whatever price that they want. Like you name your price. You know, I, I, if I bought a house for 300 K and I feel like I can go get 450 for it now, I can list it at that. You can do whatever you want, but the bank will only give a mortgage to the new buyers for whatever their appraiser says it's worth. So like, you know, if I bought, if you buy a house for 300 and, you know, maybe four or five years later, it's worth 350 actually, but like the market dictates, you could probably get 450 for it. 
the bank will give a mortgage to these new buyers for 350 because that's what it's been appraised at. Mm. The new buyers can say, okay, we want to offer 450. They have to come out with a hundred K out of their own pockets and cover that gap between what the bank will loan them and then still put down 20% of what the appraised value is to go ahead with the mortgage or they can get, you know, PMI and pay extra down the line. But like to think, like to think of the problems that people are going to get into when they're, you know, they're starting a mortgage, which is already like a pretty big financial commitment for 30 years or 20 years, whatever you do. But then to say, okay, we're going to pull another 75 K out of pocket just so that we can secure this house. You know, you're, you're going to end up putting down, you know, hundred to 130 K onto a house, you know, and then if this bubble pops crashes and then your home is only really worth the 350 that, you know, the bank appraised it at, you're, you're screwed. Like that's, that's a lot of money to just throw away just to secure a house. So that's what the big, big fear is. Yeah, man. Sure. Surely. I mean, that, that, it's, it's what's keeping me out of the market right now. If I, 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 you know, I would be in a position to, to purchase a home if they were kind of running somewhere in the realm of market value. But when you buy a home for however much it is above its value and you're banking on that home, then valuating and making you money. I mean, if this ever goes down and particularly in the next like five to 10 years, right? If this goes down, this market and home prices fall, a lot of these people are going to be underwater in a big way. Yeah. Because they bought at incredibly high prices because that's what the market dictated. But the value of their home didn't match the price. And so the investment, I, I just think there's a lot of people who, who, who were like, who, who think just wholesale that buying a home is like a great investment and it's not a bad investment. But like any investment, you don't want to overpay for it and then not have the ability to later to sell it for more than you paid for it. And um, so, but, but I don't know, man, who you just can't tell when that's going to happen, if it's going to happen, if it's going to fall or if these prices are just going to continue to surge. And you would, you would think not, but as everything has hinged on the past 10 to 15 years, 10 to 13 years, uh, it's going to hinge on what the Federal Reserve does. Um, it's going to hinge on where their, where their rates go and when they decide to, to increase interest rates and when they, uh, for how long they decide to do it. Um, so, yeah. We'll see. We have, we have, actually, we have a really interesting story that we're going to bring you here shortly about, uh, the, the central bank of, uh, Lebanon and how they stole the entirety of the country's wealth, um, and left everybody out to dry. It's, it's in the works. It's such a giant story of corruption and central banking, um, that we want to take our time and get the details of it, but, um, just kind of made me think about it, um, a little bit. Um, speaking of corruption and, uh, bad foul play internationally, there was a a story that came out and this was, um, I don't know, whatever the time is in Europe, this would have been last night, which was Monday night in Europe. Um, there was a flight, a Ryanair flight. If you ever went to Europe, you know, Ryanair. 
Um, there's a Ryanair flight um, that was going to, let's see, where was it going? It was going from Athens, Greece to Vilnius, Lithuania on Sunday. And right before it was going to touch down in Vilnius, Lithuania, the plane was diverted by Belarusian air traffic to the capital of Belarus in Minsk over what was being called at the time a security alert. What ended up happening is they took everybody off of the plane and about six or seven people didn't get back on the plane. Two of those people were arrested. One of them was a Belarusian opposition activist slash journalist, Roman Protasevich. Protasevich. Roman Protasevich. Um, And everybody, every single head of state in every country in the EU, and even Ryanair CEO is calling this... uh, foul play uh the the ceo said it was a a state's state-sponsored piracy um the irish foreign minister saying this is clearly linked to the belarusian regime Uh, not only did they divert the plane to the capital of belarus to arrest this journalist and his girlfriend but it looks like that the other four or five people that were on the plane that didn't get back on the plane were secret service of belarus and so this looked like it was planned from the beginning, um, which leads to the question, why was this guy targeted? Why was he arrested? Well, it turns out that um, he is an opposition leader uh, for the Belarus, uh, against the Belarus president, Alexander Lukashenko. And he helped mobilize a bunch of protests and he was charged last year with organizing mass riots and uh, group actions that, quote, grossly violate public order. Um, and so he's been kind of on the run from Belarus and their government because the penalty for this sort of action in Belarus is death. So he knows mm. that as he goes back home, he awaits a death penalty. And, um, of course, Belarus is diverting and they're saying that, um, that people are overreacting and that, uh, the EU were making deliberately politicized and unsupported accusations and that nobody has the apparent desire to understand the situation objectively. But what it looks like is that the Belarusian government diverted this plane to arrest an opposition journalist who more than likely awaits the death penalty. And um, that's just how the shit works in that part of the world, man. You see all the time with Russia. You see there's like a joke, like a running joke. It's a terribly morbid joke. But like, it's a bad idea to stand next to a window if you're a journalist in Russia, because you just might fall out of it. Because I forget however many however many journalists in the past four or five years have quote unquote fallen out of a window to their death, right? Mm. Um, and that's <sighs> the joke. I mean, like that's the joke about Putin, right? 
that he's a cold-blooded, calculated killer, and everyone knows it. Mm-hmm. And he knows it. Everyone knows it. And he doesn't care. These people do not care. Opposition will not be tolerated in this part of the world. And it's never clearer that these countries can go and do whatever they want, and they do not fear any repercussions for it. Um, there's a bunch of almost almost all the important players in Europe have diverted their air traffic from Belarus uh, until they wait for some sort of ruling or some sort of sanctions or some sort of something. That's but they're smart. not flying into Belarus. They're kind of cutting them off. Um, but geez, and Pete's man, I mean, just blatant, blatant disregard for the rights of this guy. The rights of the passengers on the plane, I mean, good Lord, you're about to touch down at your destination and then you're diverted for what they're calling some sort of security threat. And um, yeah, just 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 outwardly in your face um, suppression of suppression of free thought. It's it's crazy. It's ridiculous. What, what is, do you know, like the difference, the similarities between like China and Russia, like how they, cause they're both like communism. Like they both use communism to a point, right? Like, um, are they pretty similar mm, in how they handle a lot of this stuff? Like we were saying, China censors the internet. Yada, yada. No, no, not really. I mean, so once the, once the fall of the Soviet union happened, it more or less turned into like state sponsored free market capitalism. Uh, right. Okay. Before the fall of the Soviet Union, there was no such thing as free enterprise in in that part of the world. It was all run by the state. And then the Soviet Union collapsed. Sovereignty was granted to all the Soviet um, all the Soviet territories and countries. They became their own thing. Um, and so, no, it, it it it's not it's not as bad as like as like China, where China. The Chinese Communist Party is everything in China, um, but certainly there is way more governmental control in Russia than other free Western states, especially with when it comes to opposition journalists and opposition leaders. Anybody who threatens to expose a wrongdoing, anybody who threatens to take down whatever the regime is, anybody who gets in the way enough to make a scene is going to be dealt with. There's a, there's a, a journalist right now. I, I, I wish I remembered his name because it's, it's a very important story, but he was poisoned by, um, it's, it's not confirmed, but he was poisoned by, 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 by his own country for his opposition, almost died is I believe they're trying to extradite him back to Russia to face trial for his quote unquote crimes. Um, wow. You know, and then here in America, we have the luxury to call Donald Trump a fat little dicked moron who eats shit, right? You can say that with no repercussions. How beautiful is that? Oh, it's so great. It's yeah. the stories like these that just make me love where I live because you can say anything you want with almost zero repercussion legally. I mean, you can't blatantly libel somebody. I can't go sit here and say that Alex Kenzie, Alex Kenzie, uh, loves to murder puppies. 
if I said that and continue to say that, you could take me to court. But that's about it, sure. man. Like, that's like pretty much the only thing that we have going against free speech is that you can't blatantly lie about somebody and drag their name through the mud. That would cause them further harm because of what you said. But we can say whatever we want. And it's ever obvious that in this part of the, of the world, that does not exist. Which sucks, dude, because obviously there's something to say. They're, they're, they're definitely here to make sure that whatever these people are trying to say does not get said. And send the message that if you want to say what these people are going to say, you can get plucked right out of the air and be taken against your will to be imprisoned in the country of your birth for opposing whatever it is that you're opposing. Well, just keep it in line with like all the positive, you know, fun, loving stories that we like to tell. There's another one for you. <laughs> but hey, the moral would be be thankful that you right. live in a country with free speech and uh, free internet, I guess. Well, you know what they say about good news, Al? It's just advertisements. <laughs> there is no such thing as good news. That's true. There is such thing as good coffee, and drinking a good smooth cup of coffee is a mm. treat all by itself. But when it helps American heroes like veterans and first responders, it's that much better. Our sponsor, Gun Barrel Coffee, is proud to donate $1 from every item purchased to veterans and first responder charities all across the country. From their medium blend, the mother of all beans, to their double dark, the battleship roast, and even their CBD infused blend, the medic, all their coffees are smooth without that acid or bitterness you find in a lot of coffees. Now, they even have their very own hot sauce called the Big Guns, which has the coffee right into the hot sauce. Probably delicious on beef, I can only imagine. I'm very excited to try it. As far as coffee, they offer 14 different blends and roasts in which you can get whole bean, ground, or in single-serve pods. Right now, as a listener, supporter, fan of our podcast, you can go and use promo code FNH10 to save 10% at checkout when you buy their delicioso coffee. Gun Barrel Coffee. Damn good coffee. Damn good cause. And I have to say, that was a damn good show today, Frank. Yeah, man. A lot of good information. Um, if you have uh, anything to say about what we've said, uh, if you agree, disagree, if you would like to add uh, to the show, um, or you have some opposition information that you think should be said, we would love to hear it. Uh, at the end of the day, we're just a couple meatheads. So uh, go to our social media channel. Uh, handles we're on twitter at uh friendship and h we are on instagram at friendship news hour and you can always email us any time of the day bummerdude.media at gmail.com that's bummerdude.media at gmail.com your input would mean a ton to us uh, that is our show today we will see you on wednesday Bye bye